Good evening, and welcome to the Sleep with Josh podcast. It's the podcast where you sleep with Josh. I am comedian Josh Yang, and every episode I read various pieces of literature in my trademark monotone voice to help you drift off to sleep. Literature like the dictionary, laws, various manuals, the different terms of services that everyone agrees to but never really reads, and other random boring ideas. Tonight, I will continue to read the majority Supreme Court opinion in United States v. Virginia from 1996, which was penned by the recently deceased Supreme Court Justice. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the notorious RBG. So sit back, relax, and close your eyes, because you'll get tired and inspired by this episode of the podcast. Guaranteed. United States v. Virginia, continued from Part 1. The Fourth Circuit initially held that Virginia had advanced no state policy by which it could justify, under equal protection principles, its determination, quote, to afford VMI's unique type of program to men and not to women, end quote. Virginia challenges that, quote, liability, quote, ruling, and asserts two justifications in defense of VMI's exclusion of women. First, the Commonwealth contends, quote, single-sex education provides important educational benefits, end quote. From Brief for Cross Petitioners 20, and the option of single-sex education contributes to, quote, diversity in educational approaches, end quote, at 25. Second, the Commonwealth argues, quote, the unique VMI method of character development and leadership training, end quote. 
the school's adversative approach would have to be modified were VMI to admit women. We consider these two justifications in turn. Single-sex education affords pedagogical benefits to at least some students, Virginia emphasizes, and that reality is uncontested in this litigation. Similarly, it is not disputed that diversity among public educational institutions can serve the public good. But Virginia has not shown that VMI was established or has been maintained with a view to diversifying by its categorical exclusion of women educational opportunities within the state. In cases of this genre, our precedent instructs that, quote, benign justifications proffered in defense of categorical exclusion will not be accepted automatically. A tenable justification must describe actual state purposes, not rationalizations for actions in fact differently grounded. See Wiesenfeld, 420 U.S. at 648 and N16, in brackets, quote, Mere recitation of a benign or compensatory purpose End quote, does not block, quote, inquiry into the actual purposes, end quote, of government-maintained gender-based classifications, end bracket. Or, Goldfarb, 430 U.S. at 212 to 213, in brackets, rejecting government-proffered purposes after, quote, inquiry into the actual purposes, end quote, end bracket. Mississippi University for Women case is immediately in point. There, the state asserted, in justification of its exclusion of men from a nursing school, that it was engaging in, quote, educational affirmative action, end quote by, quote, compensating for discrimination against women, end quote. Undertaking a, quote, searching analysis, the court found no close resemblance between, quote, the alleged objective, end quote, and, quote, the actual purpose underlying the discriminatory classification, end quote. Pursuing a similar inquiry here, we reach the same conclusion. Neither recent nor distant history bears out Virginia's alleged pursuit of diversity through single-sex educational options. In 1839, when the state established VMI, a range of educational opportunities for men and women was scarcely contemplated. Higher education at the time was considered dangerous for women, reflecting widely held views about women's proper place, 
the nation's first universities and colleges, for example, Harvard in Massachusetts, William and Mary in Virginia, admitted only men. C.E. Ferrello, A History of the Education of Women in the United States. VMI was not at all novel in this respect. In admitting no women, VMI followed the lead of the state's flagship school, the University of Virginia, founded in 1819. Quote, No struggle for the admission of women to a state university, a historian has recounted, was longer drawn out or developed more bitterness than that at the University of Virginia, end quote. T. Woody, A History of Women's Education in the United States, from 1929. In 1879, the state senate resolved to look into the possibility of higher education for women. Recognizing that Virginia, quote, has never at any period of her history, quote, provided for the higher education of her daughters, though she, quote, has liberally provided for the higher education of her sons, end quote. Despite this recognition, no new opportunities were instantly open to women. Virginia eventually provided for several women's seminaries and colleges. Farmville Female Seminary became a public institution in 1884. Two women's schools, Mary Washington College and James Madison University, were founded in 1908. Another, Radford University, was founded in 1910. By the mid-1970s, all four schools had become co-educational. Debate concerning women's admission as undergraduates at the main university continued well past the century's midpoint. Familiar arguments were rehearsed. If women were admitted, it was feared. They, quote, would encroach on the rights of men. There would be new problems of government, perhaps scandals. The old honor system would have to be changed. Standards would be lowered to those of other coeducational schools. And the glorious reputation of the university as a school for men would be trailed in the dust. End quote. History of Women's Education. Ultimately, in 1970, quote, the most prestigious institution of higher learning higher education in Virginia, end quote, the University of Virginia, introduced co-education and, in 1972, began to admit women on an equal basis with men. See, Kierstein, the Rector and Visitors of University of Virginia, F sub 184-186 from 1970. A three-judge federal district court confirmed, quote, Virginia may not now deny to women 
on the basis of sex. Educational opportunities at the Charlottesville campus that are not afforded in other institutions operated by the state." End quote. Virginia describes the current absence of public single-sex higher education for women as, quote, an historical anomaly, end quote. Brief for cross-petitioners 30. But the historical record indicates action more deliberate than anomalous. First, protection of women against higher education. Next, schools for women far from equal in resources and stature to schools for men. Finally, conversion of the separate schools to coeducation. The state legislature, prior to the advent of this controversy, had repealed, quote, all Virginia statutes requiring individual institutions to admit only men or women, end quote. And in 1990, an official commission, quote, legislatively established to chart the future goals of higher education in Virginia, end quote, reaffirmed the policy, quote, of affording broad access, end quote, while maintaining, quote, autonomy and diversity, end quote. Significantly, the commission reported, quote, because colleges and universities provide opportunities for students to develop values and learn from role models, it is extremely important that they deal with faculty, staff, and students without regard to sex, race, or ethnic origin." End quote. This statement, the Court of Appeals observed, quote, is the only explicit one that we have found in the record in which the Commonwealth has expressed itself with respect to gender distinctions." End quote. Our 1982 decision in Mississippi University for Women prompted VMI to re-examine its male-only admission policy. Virginia relies on that re-examination as a legitimate basis for maintaining VMI's single-sex character. A mission study committee appointed by the VMI Board of Visitors studied the problem from October 1983 until May 1986, and in that month counseled against, quote, change of VMI status as a single-sex college, end quote. Whatever internal purpose the mission study committee served, and however well-meaning the framers of the report, we can hardly extract from that effort any state policy, even-handedly, to advance diverse educational options. As the district court observed, the committee's analysis, quote, primarily focused on anticipated difficulties in attracting females to VMI, end quote. And the report, overall, supplied, quote, very little indication of how the conclusion was reached, end quote. 
In sum, we find no persuasive evidence in this record that VMI's mail-only admission policy, quote, is in furtherance of a state policy of diversity, end quote. No such policy, the Fourth Circuit observed, can be discerned from the movement of all other public colleges and universities in Virginia away from single-sex education. That court also questioned, quote, how one institution with autonomy, but with no authority over any other state institution, can give effect to a state policy of diversity among institutions, end quote. A purpose genuinely to advance an array of educational options, as the Court of Appeals recognized, is not served by VMI's historic and constant plan, a plan to, quote, afford a unique educational benefit only to males, end quote. However liberally, quoted, this plan serves the state's sons, it makes no provision whatever for her daughters. That is not equal protection. Virginia next argues that VMI's adversative method of training provides educational benefits that cannot be made available unmodified to women. Alterations to accommodate women would necessarily be, quote, radical, so drastic, Virginia asserts, as to transform, indeed, quote, destroy VMI's program. Neither sex would be favored by the transformation, Virginia maintains. Men would be deprived of the unique opportunity currently available to them. Women would not gain that opportunity because their participation would, quote, eliminate the very aspects of the program that distinguish VMI from other institutions of higher education in Virginia. End quote. The district court forecast from expert witness testimony and the Court of Appeals accepted that coeducation would materially affect, quote, at least these three aspects of VMI's program physical training, the absence of privacy, and the adversative approach. End quote. And it is uncontested that women's admission would require accommodations, primarily in arranging housing assignments and physical training programs for female cadets. It is also undisputed, however, that, quote, the VMI methodology could be used to educate women, end quote. The district court even allowed that some women may prefer it to the methodology a women's college might pursue. Quote, some women, at least, would want to attend VMI if they had the opportunity, the district court recognized. And some women, the expert testimony established, are capable of all of the individual activities required of VMI cadets. End quote. The parties, furthermore, 
agreed that, quote, some women can meet the physical standards VMI now imposes on men, end quote. In sum, as the Court of Appeal stated, quote, neither the goal of producing citizen soldiers, VMI's raison d'etre, nor VMI's implementing methodology is inherently unsuitable to women, end quote. In support of its initial judgment for Virginia, a judgment rejecting all equal protection objections presented by the United States, the district court made, quote, findings on gender-based developmental differences, end quote. These, quote, findings restate the opinions of Virginia's expert witnesses, opinions about typically male or typically female, quote, tendencies. For example, quote, males tend to need an atmosphere of adversativeness, end quote while, quote, females tend to thrive in a cooperative atmosphere, end quote. Quote, I'm not saying that some women don't do well under the adversative model, end quote. VMI's expert on educational institutions testified. Undoubtedly, there are some women who do. But educational experiences must be designed, quote, around the rule this expert maintained, and not around the exception, end quote. The United States does not challenge any expert witness estimation on average capacities or preferences of men and women. Instead, the United States emphasizes that time and again since this court's turning point decision in Reed v. Reed, we have cautioned reviewing courts to take a, quote, hard look at generalizations or, quote, tendencies of the kind pressed by Virginia and relied upon by the district court. State actors controlling gates to opportunity, we have instructed, may not exclude qualified individuals based on, quote, fixed notions concerning the roles and abilities of males and females, end quote. Mississippi University for Women at 725, C.J.E.B. 511 U.S. at 139, N11, brackets, equal protection principles as applied to gender classifications means state actors may not rely on, quote, overbroad generalizations to make, quote, judgments about people that are likely to perpetuate historical patterns of discrimination, end quote, end bracket. It may be assumed, for purposes of this decision, that most women would not choose VMI's adversative method as Fourth Circuit Judge Motts observed, however, in her dissent from the Court of Appeals' denial of rehearing on Blanc, it is also probable that, quote, many men would not want to be educated in such an environment, end quote. 
in brackets on that point. Even our dissenting colleague might agree. End brackets. Education, to be sure, is not a quote one size fits all business. The issue, however, is not whether quote women or men should be forced to attend VMI, end quote. Rather, the question is whether the state can constitutionally deny to women who have the will and capacity the training and attendant opportunities that VMI uniquely affords. The notion that admission of women would downgrade VMI's stature, destroy the adversative system, and, with it, even the school, is a judgment hardly proved, a prediction hardly different from other, quote, self-fulfilling prophecies, end quote, once routinely used to deny rights or opportunities. When women first sought admission to the bar and access to legal education, concerns of the same order were expressed. For example, in 1876, the Court of Common Pleas of Hennepin County, Minnesota, explained why women were thought ineligible for the practice of law. Women train and educate the young, the court said, which, quote, forbids that they shall bestow that time, brackets, early and late, and labor, so essential in attaining to the eminence to which the true lawyer should ever aspire. It cannot therefore be said that the opposition of courts to the admission of females to practice is to any extent the outgrowth of, quote, old foggyism. It arises rather from a comprehension of the magnitude of the responsibilities connected with the successful practice of law and a desire to grade up the profession, end quote. In regards to the application of Martha Angle Dorset to be admitted to practice as attorney and counselor at law, a like fear, according to a 1925 report, accounted for Columbia Law School's resistance to women's admission, although, quote, the faculty never maintained that women could not master legal learning. No, its argument has been more practical. If women were admitted to the Columbia Law School, the faculty said, then the choicer, more manly, and red-blooded graduates of our great universities would go to Harvard Law School. End quote. Medical faculties similarly resisted men and women as partners in the study of medicine. See R. Morant Sanchez, Sympathy and Science, Women Physicians in American Medicine, pages 51 to 54, from 1985. See also M. Walsh, Doctors Wanted, No Women Need Apply, 121 to 122, from 1977 
quoting E. Clark, Medical Education of Women, Boston Medical and Surgeon, from 1869. In brackets, quote, God forbid that I should ever see men and women aiding each other to display with the scalpel the secrets of the reproductive system. End quote. End brackets. More recently, women seeking careers in policing encountered resistance based on fears that their presence would quote, undermine male solidarity. End quote. Deprive male partners of adequate assistance and lead to sexual misconduct. Field studies did not confirm these fears. See Women in Control, Supra, at 92-93. P. Block and D. Anderson, Police Women on Patrol, Final Report, from 1974. Women's successful entry into the federal military academies and their participation in the nation's military forces indicate that Virginia's fears for the future of VMI may not be solidly grounded. The state's justification for excluding all women from, quote, citizen soldier training, for which some are qualified in any event, cannot rank as, quote, exceedingly persuasive, as we have explained and applied that standard. Virginia and VMI trained their argument on, quote, means rather than end, and thus misperceived our precedent. Single-sex education at VMI serves an, quote, important governmental objective, end quote, they maintained. And exclusion of women is not only, quote, substantially related, end quote, it is essential to that objective. By this notably circular argument, the quote straightforward test Mississippi University for Women described was bent and bowed. The state's misunderstanding and, in turn, the district courts is apparent from VMI's mission to produce quote citizen soldiers individuals, quote, imbued with love of learning, confident in the functions and attitudes of leadership, possessing a high sense of public service, advocates of the American democracy and free enterprise system, and ready to defend their country in time of national peril, end quote. Surely, that goal is great enough to accommodate women who today count as citizens in our American democracy equal in stature to men. Just as surely the state's great goal is not substantially advanced by women's categorical exclusion in total disregard of their individual merit from the state's premier Quote, citizen soldier corps. Virginia, in sum, quote, has fallen far short of establishing the exceedingly persuasive justification that must be 
the solid base for any gender-defined classification. And we're going to end there for part two of the Ruth Bader Ginsburg episodes on U.S. v. Virginia, the majority opinion. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Sleep with Josh podcast. Good night.